everyone. This is Roger Herring. I am the Investors Accountant, and thank you for joining us today on Investors Accounting LLC's podcast. This new format for us, we're going to be expanding on some of the YouTube videos that we've done over the past couple of years, so we can take a little longer format and discuss in a little more detail some of the things that I normally jump around on on about four or five minute videos. I want to thank you again for coming. You know, all we do is real estate investor tax strategy. We are 100% real estate. We've been doing this for a lot of years. In fact, in March, we will celebrate 20 years of full-time private practice. I can't believe the time has gone like that. So what we're doing today, I thought that we would jump right in and take some of the questions that I've been asked over the past two years that we've done the Ask Rogers segments over on YouTube and expand on them. I think these are some good questions that would apply to most investors out there. And I get asked these things over and over again. So let's get started, all right? Let's jump right in here. The first question, what is an accredited investor? Well, you know, this is a special term that means that you have achieved a certain financial status and that you are qualified to invest into uh, certain things such as syndicates and real estate funds, etc. This was designed to protect individuals. This was to prevent um, shysters from being able to sell high-end investments to people that really couldn't afford them and could not understand them. Now, to be an accredited investor, you have to accomplish one of two things. First, you can have a $1 million net worth. And that $1 million net worth excludes your primary residence. That's right. Your home is not liquid, so that has to come off of your asset schedule. We'll take off the home and the associated mortgage, and we look at your net worth from that angle. $1 million is the target. Now, this is not an and, this is an or. The or is, if you are married, you have to have $300,000 of adjusted gross income for the previous two years with the expectation that the income will continue. If you are single, that number drops to $200,000 for two years with the expectation that it will continue. Now, Roger, what if I had uh, $300,000 last year, but not the year before? Can I take the current year and the previous year? No, you cannot. You have to have a two-year history, and the current year you must be expected to continue. So that's an accredited investor. Accredited investors can get into syndications. They can get into different tax shelters. Accredited investor status should be one of your long-term goals. All right. Next question. One of my favorites. What is a phantom loss? Now, if you are a landlord, the phantom loss is your secret sauce. That is the way to riches, tax savings, all of the above. What is it? Phantom loss means you have a loss on paper. It's not real. It's created by depreciation, and it's generally something that we see only on rental property. 
The whole idea is you have a property that is producing positive cash flow. But because of the depreciation recovery, it shows a loss on paper. So you're putting cash flow in your pocket. And what rate is cash flow taxed at? Is it taxed at 10, 15, 20, 25? How about zero? We don't tax cash flow. We only tax income. So you put the positive cash flow in your pocket. On your tax return, you've got a loss. And how much of that loss is deductible against your other income depends on what kind of investor that you are. If you're a passive investor, you can only use the passive loss to offset passive income. If you are an active participant, you can take up to $25,000 of that phantom loss applied against your other income subject to income limitations. What are the income limitations? $100,000. When you hit $100,000, you go into phase out. For every dollar over hundred grand that you make, you lose 50 cents of that maximum deduction. So at $150,000, you are totally phased out and are treated like a passive investor. And then there's the real estate pro. The real estate pro is really, that status is the goose that laid the golden egg. Because that is going to get you what? unlimited deductibility, and no income caps. What do you have to be to be a real estate pro? There's three things you have to accomplish. Across all of your real estate, and that can be as a flipper, a wholesaler, a realtor, a broker, a landlord, a property manager, as long as you are in an owner's capacity, that time counts. Okay? Now, 750 hours across the board. Second, more than half of your for-profit time must be spent in real estate. So if you work a W-2 job, and that's a thousand, our standard 2,080 hours a year, you got to have 2,080.1 in real estate to be able to claim real estate pro status. So the third thing that you have to do is be able to prove material participation on the rental properties. The problem is, is most people tell you about the first and second requirement, but they don't tell you about the third. So the easiest way to do this is across all of your rentals, we file what's known as an aggregation election. And then across all your rental properties, as long as you have 500 hours, then you can take the deductions. So you have to qualify as a real estate pro, and you have to be able to demonstrate material participation. Now, those 500 hours can be part of the 750 hours. Not a problem. For a married couple, let's say that you've got one spouse that is full-time real estate. The other spouse is not. Spouse one may be doing flipping and wholesaling full-time. Spouse two may work a W-2 job and help out on the rental properties from time to time. Spouse one, as long as they can qualify real estate pro with the 750 hours and more than half the for-profit time, now you're entitled to take spouse one's time plus spouse two's time on the rentals and add them together to achieve 500 hours. So one spouse must qualify on the first two counts outright 
but on the material participation requirement, a married couple, their time is added together. That's good news, guys. Now, the next question that people ask, well, what happens when you're phased out and you can't take the phantom loss in the year that it happens? Well, it's going to carry forward indefinitely until such a time as you can use it. Well, when would that happen, Raj? You sell the property. You sell the property, the capital gain is considered to be passive income. And you can go back and recapture the passive losses that have accumulated. And here's the good news. That capital gain will be taxed at a capital gain rate. But the losses that you recapture are going to offset ordinary income. So that's a pretty good deal. So even if you can't bring your income below zero on your real estate, there is some good news down the road for that. All right. Next question. Can you have a phantom loss in anything other than real estate? Yes, you can. It's rare in some cases, but it's a little bit more common the past couple of years. So I've got a client. They are a builder. What do they build? Apartment complexes. They have a lot of equipment and they buy new equipment every year. We're able to utilize Section 179, which is a type of depreciation, and because they are in an ordinary income business, this works. 179 is not available to a landlord. We also can use bonus depreciation and create a phantom loss through depreciation recapture, or through depreciation. The other way and I've had a lot of clients do this the past couple of years when we've had 100% bonus depreciation, is through what a lot of people call the SUV deduction. Well, what the heck is that? Basically, you buy a vehicle that is over 6,000 pounds and is a qualifying SUV or a truck with at least a six-foot bed, and we are able to essentially write the whole vehicle off in one year. And because we're using bonus depreciation, we can create a loss. So that would be also a phantom loss. So the answer is yes, you can do it. But here's the thing. Don't go out and try to do the vehicle deduction on your own. Read about it. Get some advice. I'll go ahead and tell you up front. I tell my clients don't buy a new vehicle until the last day of the year. Because the amount of your deduction is determined by the business use of the vehicle. So if you buy your vehicle in January, you may only have wind up with 60% business use. So you can only write off 60% of the vehicle. But if you buy it on December 31st, drive it home and park it, now you've got 100% business use. And as long as in the future, that business use doesn't drop below 50% for the year, you're not going to get recaptured. So that's the good news on that. Some people call that the SUV deduction. It's still out there, but this is the last year gain for 100% bonus depreciation. So we drop in 2023 to back to 50%. Will Congress change uh, this very popular thing? I don't know. Congress can't seem to get anything done right now. So that's where we are. Next question. About LLCs. I, I love LLCs because it's the basic strategy for everything. So where should I set it up? My answer is generally 
I don't care. That's it. I don't care where you set up your LLC, what state you did. The thing is, I'm looking at this from a tax perspective, and I operate under the tax law. The LLC, where it's set up, is going to determine your legal entity. Excuse me, not your tax entity. So, you can set it up in Delaware. You can set it up in Nevada. You can set it up in Utah. You can set it up in Texas. You can set it up in North Dakota or any of these other states that some of these programs uh, want you to use. Okay, here's the thing, though. Exercise a little common sense because a lot of these training programs, they get you hyped up and excited about things, and they get you to spend money. So this is what I want you to consider. Is it smart when you're starting off to spend several thousand dollars on a business structure and an entity structure when you could accomplish the same level of protection with insurance? That's the question you got to ask, okay? I tell people all the time, when you are talking about asset protection, your first line of defense is to be a good business person, be a good landlord, be a good flipper, treat people honestly. Your fallback position is insurance, okay? After that, that's where you have your limited liability company, and then you should also have an umbrella insurance policy. And let me give you a little hint. All umbrella policies are not created equal. You need to read your insurance policies. Most investors have no clue what's in their policy. And when it's too late, they come to find out that their um, personal umbrella doesn't cover rental properties that are held in limited liability companies. Ooh, that's not good. You see, the insurance companies have these people called adjusters on their staff. And one of the things they do is try not to pay claims. That's just the way it is. I had a friend who had a storefront, and he had a really good year. And he had just purchased a whole bunch of computer equipment for his front office. Well, one evening, there was a smash and grab. Truck rammed the front window. The guys got in. The police were there in seven and a half minutes. But the computer equipment was gone. He filed a claim with the insurance company, and they refused to pay. Why? He had an alarm. And whoever was the last one to leave that day had forgotten to set the alarm. And because he had a discount on the policy for having the alarm, his contributory negligence of not setting the alarm gave the insurance company a license not to pay. That's not cool. So what you need to consider, where are you going to set up your LLC? Do you need a fancy structure? Or could you simply form in the state that you are working in and buy adequate insurance? That becomes the question, guys. Next one. When can I quit my job? People want to fire their bosses all the time. They get into real estate. They get excited. They want to be out on their own. But here's the thing, gang. 
you don't walk away from an ordinary income stream because the cold hard reality is if you have a small business and you quit your job, your biggest overhead just became you because you got to eat. So either you're going to starve or your business is going to starve. I tell people you keep your full-time job until you get to the point where your part-time business is covering your salary, the cost of your benefits, plus 20%. I also like to see about six months reserves saved up before the client bails on that. Okay? That's just personal preference. But you should not be walking away from an ordinary income stream until you get that business built. I had a person come into my office, and he was all excited because he told me as soon as he left my office, he was going to give his notice. And I said, well, that's good, so tell me what's happening. He said, I've got my first deal happening. I said, your first deal? He said, yeah. I said, so you're selling? He said, no, I'm buying. So the guy was about to bail on an income stream when he was acquiring his first property. Okay, bad idea. Very bad idea. So guys, let's do one more question. And this is one that I'm asked all the time, especially when I'm talking with a prospect. Is there anything that I should be asking you that I haven't? So I'm going to kind of move that around to when you're interviewing an accountant that you're going to be working with, what questions should you ask him? Well, you're an investor, right? So the first question is, how many investor clients do you have? Because a lot of accounting firms out there, they have very few real estate investor clients. They have a bunch of physicians, a bunch of storefronts, a smattering of real estate agents, a smattering of um, police officers, dentists, etc. And their practice is a hodgepodge, whereas a firm like ours, Investors Accounting, we're 100% real estate. But the most important question to ask the person is, do you now or have you in the past been involved in investment? Bottom line, you're asking them, do you walk the walk or just talk the talk? And if the answer is no, they have never been in investing, you might want to seek uh, advice elsewhere because they may or may not know what they're doing. Hey guys, I appreciate you joining us today. We're going to end it up right here. You know, I said on the first podcast, we didn't know how long we're going to be going. There is no standard time. I think we've gone close to 20 minutes now. I want to thank you for joining us. And if you would like to connect with me, Facebook is the easiest way to do it. I'm Roger Herring, or you can connect with us on Investors Accounting, our business page there. If you've got a question or a comment that you would like us to address that either here on the podcast or over on YouTube for our um, Ask Roger segments, you can send an email to info at investorsaccounting.com. Again, thanks for joining us. Until the next time, Roger out.